Christmas is only three weeks away, and we are three sermons into our nine-sermon series through the book of Isaiah. We paused Genesis so that we could focus on Isaiah's messianic prophecies, seeking to see and savor Jesus Christ this Christmas. Isaiah prophesies about Jesus, the coming king, the anointed conqueror, Jesus the branch, the foundation, the teacher, and the servant. Indeed, there is no better book to study this Christmas than the book of Isaiah. Have you ever longed for a world freed from conflict? where peace reigns among all of creation? Have you ever wished for a life that is untouched by the decay of this world, a life that will be restored to its original design? Well, this morning, we will see a vision of restoration that echoes through the ages, a promise of redemption, not just for our souls, but for the very fabric of our existence. I invite you to once again open your Bible to the book of Isaiah, where we will see a world without enmity, a future without decay. Let's go on a journey to a restored creation and a renewed heart. Isaiah is the third largest work in the Bible, second or third to Jeremiah and the Psalms. The New Testament quotes and builds on Isaiah to show the different aspects of both Christ's nature and Christ's ministry. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. That's the meaning of his name. Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves, which is very appropriate because that's the focus of this book is God's redemption. Isaiah, the son of Amos, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, composed this book, this sacred book of prophecies, during a turbulent 8th and 7th centuries B.C. The ministry of Isaiah occurred amid internal apostasy and the external threat of Assyrian invasion. Isaiah prophesies, uh, and, and his prophecies really emphasize various perfections of God emphasizing God's righteousness, God's sovereignty, explaining how God scorns hubris and idolatry, how God calls for repentance, lest He pour out His just judgment. There are two main parts to this grand masterpiece. The first reveals prophecies of judgment, judgment on Jerusalem, on Judah, and on the neighboring nations. The second part inspires hope for future salvation, the arrival of God's kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 1, God condemns empty, empty religious practices that are void of a sincere relationship to Him. He promises reward for repentance, but He warns that if you do not repent, then you will face the just consequences. But despite God's plea, his people Israel and Judah remain stubborn. Therefore, judgment is unavoidable. In Isaiah chapter 2, there is a contrast between deliverance and disaster. 
God presents a picture of a future restoration, His hope for the restoration of all, all who will turn to Yahweh in repentance and faith. And this vision outlines three key characters, uh, traits really, of this future kingdom. Firstly, the beginning of the kingdom is described as being in the last days. Second, that God's chosen city, Jerusalem, will be at the center of His domination. It will, he will reign the world from Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem, will be both the spiritual and the literal capital of His kingdom. Thirdly, the rise of this monarchy will lead to the lifting of the curse. Israel will regain her status as God's chosen people, God's chosen nation, and the world will accept God's teaching. Isaiah chapter 3, God urges His people to turn away from evil and to obey His word because He wants to bless and not destroy. Isaiah 3 pictures society's collapse due to sin. Isaiah chapter 4, in, in Isaiah 4, reprimands are then followed by the assurance of restoration. Despite the collapse of Judah, God promises to fulfill His covenant promises, His promise to restore Israel through His coming Messiah, His anointed one. The restoration promises a righteous king, Indeed, only Christ can bring a righteous reign. Only He can bring hope for a better society. Secondly, there is an abundant prosperity promised to the survivors of the tribulation. They will have abundant physical fruitfulness in the kingdom, and not just in Jerusalem, but globally. And then third, a, a clean people is, is promised. Only those who have been purified, only those who have been redeemed by faith through God's favor will inherit the kingdom. During the tribulation, God will save a remnant by pouring out His Spirit of regeneration upon them. And then fourthly, Yahweh will dwell with His people. The promise of God living with His people, providing national security, shelter under God's glory, God's glory which covers the entire city of Zion. In Isaiah 4, we urge to contemplate Jesus' sacrifice, His resurrection, and to look forward to His return when He will complete His work of redemption. In Isaiah chapter 5, Yahweh continues this theme of judgment, judgment for disobedient Israel, referring to them as an unproductive vineyard. And then in Isaiah 6, we see the prophet's call to ministry. First his cleansing and then his commission. Yahweh prepares Isaiah for this ministry, which is a ministry of warning prophecies and, uh, and, and prophecies that will really go unheeded by Israel. They'll be ignored. Isaiah is prepared for this daunting task by Yahweh revealing his majesty, the Lord on a high throne, ruling over the heavens and the earth. Isaiah sees Yahweh's holiness depicted by the angelic seraphim surrounding him, singing, holy, holy, holy. He is then washed as a reminder that God's grace is greater than our sin and that there is hope of salvation in Christ the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7 highlights the tension between trusting God and relying upon human might 
human strength, human resources. King Ahaz feared Syria and Israel, and so he sought help from Assyria rather than from Yahweh, resulting in Assyrian invasion in, in, in Judah with devastating consequences. In Isaiah chapter 8, God emphasizes the birth of a significant child with a symbolic name, and, and it's given as a sign. Following Emmanuel, who we saw in chapter 7, Isaiah 8 presents a second prophecy. Isaiah's second son is born, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, foreshadowing Syria and Israel's destruction before the boy reaches maturity. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 4, conveys two messages. The first we saw last Sunday, the promise of a future res restoration for Israel at the second coming of Christ. And then what follows is the imminent judgment of Israel, but not only Israel, but judgment of her oppressors as well. Even though God brings discipline, which ought to lead them to repentance, they refuse. And they continue in their evil ways, resulting in further judgment. God remains unwavering in His resolve to punish a nation that will continue to walk in unrepentant sin. This morning we'll take a closer look at chapter 11, but I'd like as to first begin by perusing Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5 through to 34, the end of the chapter, for the immediate context. From Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 to the end of the chapter, Isaiah, his narrative turns quickly from explaining the reasons for God's anger towards Israel to describing God's wrath against her oppressor, Assyria. Yes, Assyria may have carried out God's plan in punishing his people, Israel. But Assyria's arrogance and Assyria's oppression of his people will lead to their own downfall. It was Yahweh who gave them victory. Yahweh who used this evil nation as his instrument, his rod of correction, his instrument of discipline to discipline his people, Israel. The only sovereign and supreme being, God, uses sinful human choices within His eternal purposes, but still holds them accountable for their sinful acts, for their actions. After they fulfilled Yahweh's purpose, Assyria will face judgment for their sins. In verses 15 through 19, we see that no one succeeds against God. And then in verses 20 through 27, God again assures Israel of his future restoration for a chosen remnant. And he provides hope to his people and even to us in the midst of adversity, encouraging us to draw near to God through faith in Christ in the midst of difficulty. Really, this then brings us into chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, our passage this morning. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 16, the entire chapter, the prophet Isaiah reveals the redemptive work of the promised child, the redemptive work of the Messiah, the, this messianic king. 
In this passage, Isaiah showcases four unique aspects of the promised child. Four unique aspects of the promised child offering assurance of future restoration through the righteous reign of the, of the branch. Four aspects of this promised child offering assurance of future restoration through the righteous reign of the branch. So with this context in mind, let's read Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the, fat, and the fatling together, and a young boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing baby will play by the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will do no evil, nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will be in that day that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. Those who assail Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not assail Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will stretch out their hands over Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will obey them. And Yahweh will devote to destruction the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria, for the remnant of his people will remain, just as there was for Israel. In that day they will in that day they came up out of the land of Egypt. So reads God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, the prophet showcases four unique aspects of the promised child, which offer assurance of a future restoration 
through the righteous reign of the branch. The central theme, as we've seen in chapters 7 through 12, is the promise of a special son, a special child. And thus chapter 11 continues focusing on this special promised child. At the end of chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10, the destruction of Assyria's powerful tree is forecast, whilst Judah's fallen tree is not. The fallen tree of Judah shall be, ret- shall be restored in her glory. Judah's tree has been felled, but unlike the forest of Assyria, it is not destroyed. The house of David focuses in on one man, the one who is the only hope for humanity, the promised child, God, who will come through the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 16, we see four unique qualities of this promised child. And the first aspect of this promised child is that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which we see in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This promised child is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God promised King David hundreds of years earlier that he was working to establish an eternal dynasty through David's family. Turn quickly in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a really important chapter because in this chapter, this is where we find God's promise to King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. God says to David, from verse 12 in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and, strike, and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Ultimately, the house of David would give the world the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 11 verse 1, in this opening verse of Isaiah chapter 11, we see that the king is described in two ways. The first description of this eschatological son is that of the shoot. He's called the shoot. The second is that he's called the branch. And you'll remember from our study of Genesis that Adam's transgressions resulted in a curse, which only God can remove. But the good news is that God has sent his promised seed of the woman. 
He has sent a Savior to bring about this restoration. In Isaiah 4 verse 2, Isaiah describes the Savior as a lovely branch who will reign in God's kingdom. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, Isaiah describes the Savior as the one born of a virgin, given the name Emmanuel, which we know is translated God with us. In Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7, as we saw last Sunday, the the Savior who arrives as a child in Israel will one day return to reign in an eternal kingdom with a restored people. And here in Isaiah 11 verse 1, this promised one is described as a shoot. Yes, the house of David, the descendants of Jesse will fall. But one from the line of David will arise. A branch will shoot out from the fallen stump. In the second half of verse 1 we see, from his roots he will bear fruit. This shoot is the one who will emerge from Jesse's stump. The tree of David's kingdom was cut down long ago. But Isaiah says there's still hope. Because one day the branch will come, will, will come forth and bear fruit. The branch that sprouts from the side of the tree's stump is a descendant of David who offers promise of new life for the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 11 verse 1, God promises life to fallen Israel through the promised Davidic king, the one who will govern with God's wisdom and God's righteousness. The birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago demonstrates that God is faithful to his promises. Indeed, he preserved the house of David. One was born in the line of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He came to this earth to provide redemption through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection. He ascended into heaven where he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. And seeing God's faithfulness should cause us to be encouraged. We see that he kept his promise to David. And and that will give us assurance that he will keep his promise. All the promises pertaining to what he will do when he returns. When he will officially take his seat on David's throne in Jerusalem. Reigning over the world in righteousness and peace. Saving the Gentiles and the redeemed, the, the remnant, the elect from his people Israel. We find solace and trust in God's promises, knowing that he will indeed return. He will rule this world in justice and equity, in righteousness, in peace, lifting the curse, making just and impartial decisions, which leads us to the second unique aspect of this promised child, The second unique aspect of the promised child is that he lives with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He lives with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which we see in verses 2 through 5. He lives with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We see it four times in verse 2. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear, 
But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will put the wicked to death. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The Spirit's repeated four times just in verse 2. Because the promised child will live and minister filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he ministers in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah's leadership will reflect the wisdom of God himself. Many of the leaders in Isaiah's day were godless, foolish, self-seeking. But the Messiah will rule by his Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And he will rule in the fear of Yahweh. When the Messiah returns, he will judge the righteous and the wicked according to God's holiness and God's wisdom. You and I are united to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And just as Jesus relied upon and will rely upon the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we too are to depend upon the Spirit. We should depend upon Him for wisdom, for discernment, for empowerment in our daily lives and in our service of God's church. Men, we are to lead in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of Yahweh, relying upon the Holy Spirit to guide us using His authoritative Word, His sufficient Word, which is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. We are not to make decisions based upon our own human wisdom, but guided by filtering our decisions through the lenses of God's Word, His revealed truth in Scripture. Like Christ, we are not to show partiality based upon superficial appearances or social status, but on righteousness and justice. Most importantly, we are to cultivate and exhibit righteousness and faithfulness as an essential aspect of our character, guiding our, our thoughts, our words, our actions, uh, characterizing our relationships. This is important, but this is impossible unless we depend upon the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us by His truth. As we eagerly await the return of Christ, when he will lift the curse, we see the third unique aspect of this promised child. Great anticipation, great eagerness. The third aspect of this promised child's redemptive mission is the eradication of the earthly curse. Oh, how we long for the eradication of the earthly curse, which we see in verses 6 through 9. The eradication of the earthly curse. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a young boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing baby, like little Daniel and Leah, the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will do no evil, nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, 
For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Wow, what a day. According to verses 6 through 9, the promised child will cleanse the world of the curse. Firstly, eradicating enmity within the animal kingdom, as we see in verses 6 through 8. And then in verse 9, bringing peace, ending animosity between animals and, 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 and people, even people and nations, between people with one another and nations with nations. We see an animal today killing another animal for food, and we just think it's natural. But this is contrary to God's original design. In God's created order, as we saw in the opening two chapters of Genesis, there was peace, there was harmony, there was no death. Death was introduced the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the forbidden fruit. And so death spread to all men, and death spread to all of creation. Thus Paul says in Romans 9 verse 18 through 27, that creation itself is groaning. Creation is anxiously longing for the restoration of all things, the lifting of the curse. We long for Christ to come, to rid this world of the curse, which we're reminded of daily as we turn on the news, as we see people getting sick, as we see bacteria growing on trees and eating plants. We long for Christ to rid the world of the curse, to usher in His magnificent restoration. God will eliminate animosity between animal and animal, and between animal and people. In the middle of verse 9, we see a key word here. The word, in the middle of verse 9, the word for, the word for, which gives the reason, the reason for this peace and harmony. Why will no one do evil and act corruptly in God's kingdom? Middle of verse 4, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. When Jesus returns to this earth, all demons will be bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. When Jesus returns to this earth, all the unsaved will be removed and cast into the bottomless pit awaiting final judgment at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Only those who have trusted in Jesus will be allowed to enter into his kingdom. The enmity that the curse introduced will be gone forever. And the world will experience rest from this curse. And not just restoration within the animal kingdom, but the promised child will bring restoration of his elect remnant, which we see in the fourth and final unique aspect of his ministry, the fourth and final aspect of the promised child is that he gives redemption and restoration to the redeemed. He gives redemption and restoration to the redeemed, which we read in verses 10 through 16. Christ provides redemption and restoration to the redeemed. Verse 10 to the Gentiles, and then verse 11 through to 16, the remnant from Israel. Then it'll be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it'll be in that day 
that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who assail Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not assail Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will stretch out their hands over Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will obey them. And Yahweh will devote to destruction the tongue of the sea of Egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria, for the remnant of his people will remain just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. The promised child will restore all, all the redeemed, all those who have placed their faith in the Messiah. In verses 1 through 9, Isaiah focuses on the eschatological restoration that the Messiah will bring to the animal kingdom. And then here in verses 10 through 16, we see the restoration that he will bring to the elect remnant. This includes the restoration of both the redeemed Gentiles, the Gentile remnant in verse 10, as well as the Jewish remnant in verses 11 through 16. Isaiah indicates twice that this restoration will occur in that day. This is an eschatological reference, an, an eschatological restoration that will occur at the end of the age. This hasn't occurred in any other stage of history. Verse 10 says that a Gentile remnant, a, a goyim, a, the nations, will repent. The nations, the Gentile nations will repent. The Gentile nations will seek the root of Jesse who will stand as a standard for the people and his resting place will be glorious. The root of Jesse, this righteous branch, this promised child will be the standard. The Hebrew word is ness, which is translated as, as, as a mast, like a ship's mast in Isaiah 33 verse 23. A ness is a pole that is used as a standard or a sign which is set on the tops of mountains to issue a call to the people. It's like a flag which acts as a rally point. During the great tribulation, the Messiah will be the rally point, the one who calls the Gentile remnant to himself. During the seven-year tribulation, his people from among the Gentiles, they will seek him confidently. Verse 10 isn't speaking about believing Gentiles of this age, the, the church. Jews and Gentiles saved under the new covenant grafted into the church. This is looking ahead to the period of the tribulation, the seven years before Christ returns to this earth to establish his kingdom. At this stage, the church has already been raptured. Verse 10 is referring to the Gentiles, those tribulational Gentiles who will come to faith in the Messiah during the great tribulation. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, the Messiah will return and establish his kingdom here on earth. And as we see at the end of verse 10, his resting place in his temple, his menucha, will be glorious. 
But God is not only going to save some Gentiles in that day, God is also going to save a Jewish remnant, which we see in verses 11 through 16. And Isaiah states again in verse 11, in that day, in the day when the sovereign Lord regathers his people for a second time, this time, however, only the scattered remnant, the Shi'ar, will be present. Not every single Jew. The promised child's restoration of Israel will resemble the regathering that took place in the great Exodus, the regathering from Egypt. But unlike the Exodus, this restoration will be exclusively for the elect Jews from all around the world, the four corners of the world. During the Exodus from Egypt in 1446 BC, Yahweh God brought his people back to himself. And when Babylon fell to Persia in 539 BC, Yahweh God allowed his people to return to the land, to Jerusalem. But the restoration that Isaiah speaks of here is far greater than that. This is the restoration that will come from all over the world, where Jews from all over the world will be saved and regather in the promised land, as we see at the end of verse 12. The Messianic kingdom will usher in the restoration of the Jews, which is not primarily referring to the, the future smaller restoration, which would take place from Babylon under the rule of Zerubbabel in 537 BC. This future restoration will be from all around the world. Isaiah describes this restoration as coming from eight separate places from the old world, eight regions where there were essentially no Jews living during Isaiah's day. And by the way, you can see these places uh, graphically displayed in a handout in your Livingstone today, or Michael Ray will send the, the image, the map out on the Sunday service group, which you can look down at. Assyria, to the northeast of Israel. Egypt, to the west of Israel. Jews will come from Pathros in the Nile Valley, Cush in Nubia or Ethiopia to the south of Egypt. Elam to the east of Israel at the southern end of Persia. Shinar in the region of Babylonia. Hamath in Syria, just north of Israel. And the islands of the regions of the Mediterranean world to the west. All these promises, they are important for God's new covenant restoration of Israel. And these promises are repeated through the prophet Jeremiah, 100 years after Isaiah. And you can read about them in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. God says that he will do this by building up a standard, a ness for the nations, referring to the Gentile nations who will be part of this helping in this restoration. Just as Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, that God will raise this banner and his people will return. The trumpet will sound. The Israel's scattered elect will return to Yahweh through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is a eschatological restoration of Israel. It shouldn't be confused with the momentary deliverance out of Babylon. The restoration spoken of by Isaiah is a 
It's a, it's a future restoration. Even post-exilic Zechariah in Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 8, and Zechariah 10, verses 8 through 12, speaks about this. This is not a, a, a returning to the land under a Gentile king. This is a returning to the land under the Messiah, the King of kings, the Davidic king. In Isaiah 11, verses 13 and 14, we see that this restoration, this future restoration, will include a total healing of the national division. The division that occurred when the kingdom was divided in two under the reign of Rehoboam in 931 BC. Verse 13 says that this restoration will remove this internal division which had occurred, allowing the people to once again reunite without violence, taking possession of the land that God promised Abraham. No longer divided as two nations, the ten northern nations and the two southern nations, but twelve tribes united together under Christ. Verses 15 and 16 demonstrates that Israel's restoration will be so thorough that no one will be scattered, for nothing will stand in his way. Using imagery from the south, the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and then from the north, the, the river, referring to the Euphrates River, Isaiah claims that they will come from all over the world. No one will prevent them from coming. The prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 39, verses 25 through 29, he says, Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, Now I will return the fortunes of Jacob and have compassion on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. So they will forget their dishonor and all their unfaithfulness, which they perpetuated against me when they lived securely on their own land, when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them tremble. When I return them from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall prove myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am Yahweh their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then collected them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares Lord Yahweh. It's fascinating to see this in the book of Revelation, how the book of Revelation sh sheds light on these passages. Revelation 9, 13 and 14 says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the, four from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. And in Revelation 16, verse 12, it, is, it stated, and the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the, Euphra the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. This is Christ's judgment on the earth during the tribulation, resulting in a restoration of his people Israel. Yes, there will be significant opposition to God's promised restoration of Israel. But in the end, nothing will stop God from fulfilling his promises. The Bible makes it clear that God will restore his people Israel through the redeeming work of his son, 
Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised Savior who gave His life for His people. And He will one day return to complete His mission. This is the life. This is the mission, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Yes, you and I live in a very broken world where sin and death and destruction run rampant. But although we live in a broken world, we know that we are not of this world, that our home is with the Lord. Our ultimate destiny is dwelling with the Lord on this restored earth where peace and righteousness dwells. However, you and I desire to live on earth as we would live in heaven, right? Let your will in heaven be done on earth. And so as Christians, we strive to live here on earth as if we will live in heaven. We seek reconciliation and harmony in our broken relationships, just as the promised child will bring peace among all creatures and all nations. We put to death selfishness and unloving partiality. We love one another unconditionally, selflessly, sincerely. Understanding this great salvation that we have in Christ, understanding the glorious future that awaits us who are in Christ, the future of Christ's kingdom here on earth, that should give us a great burden for the lost. That should compel you to preach the gospel. That should collapse you on your knees in fervent prayer, pleading for their salvation. Since we live in a sin-cursed world, we should fix our gaze upon King Jesus and His coming kingdom, persevering through hardship but with hope, knowing that Christ will return, and when He returns, He will bring the restoration of all things. Amid financial hardship, physical illness, relational strain, emotional pressure, Meditate upon, remember God's promises. Meditate upon His character, His perfections. Indeed, God is faithful. He is powerful. Jesus is sovereign. He will do what He has promised. Trust Him. Continue to press on. Persevere because Christ will return. And all your suffering will end. He will restore all things. Persevere with a settled confidence in knowing who God is and knowing that whatever you are facing right now, this very moment, is for your good and for His glory. As you endure, maintain a spirit of submission, obeying God's will, trusting God's timing. On that day, the whole world will be full of His glory. The whole world will know Yahweh. His, the knowledge of Yahweh will extend to the ends of the earth. Therefore, whilst we wait for that day, strive to be a student of God. Pursue a deep and intimate knowledge of God. Make it your aim to know Him more and more through studying the Scriptures and through prayer. 
Don't let the stresses and the disappointments and the discouragements and the difficulties of this world keep you from your time in His Word and your time on your knees before Him in prayer. Trust me. This is what you need more than breath itself. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And knowing that the ultimate victory over sin and evil will, be, will bring about everlasting peace and righteousness, we should be encouraged to remain faithful as we eagerly await the return of this promised child. As believers, we can rest securely in God's sovereignty, trusting that in the end, God's purposes will prevail. His kingdom will reign. He will reign in his kingdom and it's a, a kingdom characterized by peace and righteousness let's bow and pray heavenly father we are in awe of your promises and the hope anchored in the redemptive work of our lord and savior your son jesus christ we are grateful for the vision of restoration that you've revealed to us through your word. Lord, we acknowledge the brokenness that surrounds us, the struggles that we face, the trials that test our faith and strengthen our faith. Yet in the midst of this broken world, you've called us to be lights, bearers of your love, ambassadors of reconciliation. May your spirit guide us to live as citizens of your coming kingdom, seeking harmony in our relationships loving one another and having a compassion for the lost. Grant us strength to persevere in prayer and in the sharing of the gospel with those who are yet to know your saving grace. As we eagerly await your return, help us to keep our eyes focused on you, Lord Jesus, knowing that your victorious return will bring about the restoration of all things. May this hope sustain us through the hardships and the trials that we encounter on a daily basis. Lord, in our pursuit of a deeper knowledge of you, draw us closer to you and to your word. Enable us to cultivate a fervent prayer life. And may we find our sustenance in your truth, relying upon your promises, especially in the darkest of days. Empower us to live with a firm assurance that your purposes will prevail, your kingdom will come, a kingdom of peace and righteousness. We offer this prayer in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, our King, and our Redeemer. Amen.